0: you will turn with me to Matthew 2. Tonight we're going to consider a rather well-known passage and you guys are probably quite familiar with this story. So we want to look at that together. Look with me at Matthew chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 1 through 12 as we continue really with this Advent series looking at the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray the Lord's help as we receive his word. Father, we do pray that as we study your word together, as we look at this passage of the Magi whom you called to worship your son and who came and worshiped him, pray that you would give us clarity and, and our understanding of the word that we would like them rejoice in Jesus, the Messiah, that our joy in him and the salvation we know in him would burst forth in praise that we would live each day with great thankfulness for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I said earlier that tonight we come to a passage that's really quite well-known, often well-known because it incorrectly makes an appearance in nativity scenes. So a lot of you have nativity scenes and you have your three magi there, right, your three wise men in the nativity scene. This story of the magi who come to visit Jesus and bring gifts to him Shows up in these scenes, always with three magi, uh, representing the three gifts. We've even gone far enough in our culture to, and this was prior to us, medieval period, but to give them names. So we've named the three, Balthazar, Melchior, and Casper. Further, we sing hymns about them. We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar. You guys are familiar with that hymn? The song actually has some moving verses in it with regard to the three gifts and it's what we often teach about these gifts that the gold is bringing really to Jesus a kind of offering as a king. The frankincense is being brought as a sort of incense that you'd bring before a deity and the myrrh is a kind of bitter perfume that you're bringing in order to deal with the death of Christ. And while my purpose Tonight is not to ruin a beautiful hymn, nor to mock your nativity scenes. That's not my purpose. I do want to make a few comments about this historically, just so we understand what this passage is actually about. First, we have no reason to believe there were only three magi. Because we list three kinds of gifts, we say there are three magi, but we don't have any idea how many there were, nor do we have a record of their names. Yes, they brought three kinds of gifts, but most scholars argue that in traveling this far as Magi from the east, they would have probably been in a band of potentially 50 to 100. So, if you're going to keep up the Magi at your manger scene, it's going to get a lot bigger. (laughs) Second, these Magi are not technically kings. We sing of these three kings of Orient or from the east, but they're not technically king. With that said... Labeling of them as kings is picking up on an important biblical theological theme of Gentile kings bringing gifts to the Christ. And that's where we get that from. And in fact, we'll actually see that the Magi do mirror the Old Testament picture of Gentile kings bringing gifts to the king of the Jews. So that's where we get that idea. Third, these Magi's likely do not arrive at the birth scene. If you notice the passage... After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, these wise men come from the east and they're looking for a child. Herod goes on then to look for all the children two years old and younger to put them to death. They're now in the house. They're no longer technically in the manger. They're living in the house. The manger would have been, it's not like, oh, there's no room for them in the inn. Like there's a nasty old innkeeper who won't let the pregnant woman in. That's not what's happening. It's actually the family home and the manger would have been the part on the first floor. The home would have been above that. Underneath that would have been essentially the stable where they keep the animals. That's where they end up staying, because there's no room in the house. Why is there no room in the house? Not because they don't care about pregnant women, but because it's a census. And so they're all showing up, and the family can't all fit in the house, so some of them are in the manger below, and that's where they're at. They're not in the manger though, when the Magi show up. They're now in the house. Likely, Jesus is somewhere between one and two years old by the time the Magi come. We're not entirely sure. After pointing this out several years ago, I went to the Heppner's house for a pastoral visit. Do you guys remember this? And I saw your nativity scene and I asked where the Magi were. And then they pointed across the living room. They said, they're over there, they're on their way, right? (laughs) And so they took it quite literally. Just to be clear, though, my hope as we look at this passage is not that you go out and buy 50 more Magi for your nativity scene, nor that you put your Magi across the living room. We can talk about whether nativity scenes are good to have or not. That's a whole other conversation. My hope in this whole conversation is that you come to understand what's happening in this scene. That you come to understand what's happening here. I want you to see that in this scene we learn about Jesus from the coming of the Magi to worship really, if you will, this newborn king. So we're going to consider that passage or this what we learn about Jesus from the Magi really in two movements tonight. The first is the Magi being called to come and see the newborn king. So that's Matthew 2, 1 through 8. We'll look at the calling of the Magi to come and see Jesus. And then secondly, we'll look at the Magi's worship of this newborn king In Matthew 2, 9 through 12. So we'll look first at their calling to come to see him. And secondly, at their worship. So let's consider the first movement, if you will. The Magi being called to come and see the newborn king. Look at Matthew 2, 1 through 2 with me. Now Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. In the days of Herod the king. Just so you know, Herod dies in 4 B.C. Herod the king dies in 4 B.C. He's looking for children that would have been born within the last two years. Most scholars surmise from that that Jesus is born somewhere between 5 and 6 or 7 B.C. He's born in that window somewhere. I know we think that he's born in year zero. There is no year zero, just so you know. 1 B.C., then 1 A.D. I see all kinds of goofy stuff about that. But he's born actually probably from 5 to 7 BC, before Herod dies in 4 BC. And wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. These wise men from the east, we should probably just translate magi. We don't like saying magi because we know what that is short for. It's short for magician. Or astrologers. These are astrologers from the east. Coming to see Jesus. You guys know what astrology is? You know your sign. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Right? When I was growing up, I was actually quite into astrology. And I could tell you all about my astrological sign and what it meant. I'm a cancer. Right? And the whole thought is cancerous. But there it was. These are astrologers. They somehow mix a bit of astronomy with their paganism. Right? They look at the stars for signs. Planetary movements, moons, etc., to find out what's happening in life. And these are the men who come to see Jesus. They come from the east. Where? East of Jerusalem, where they're coming from, is likely what would have been called Babylon or present day Iraq. So they would have been coming out of present day Iraq or what at the time was Babylon and going to Jerusalem. And look what it says. They said, verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So what is happening here with Magi coming from the east or the area that in that time would have been Babylon and going west to Jerusalem? What's happening there? How do they know these Magi about the Jewish Messiah? And why are they following this odd star? And this star is odd. A lot of guys have tried to make out answers for what this star is. None of them are particularly satisfactory because the star rises at a particular time. They follow it to a location and then they follow it all the way to the final location of Bethlehem over a house. That's not normal behavior for stars. You understand that? Nor planetary movements. Guys have tried to nail it down to a particular scientific cause It seems the best answer is, it's some sort of miraculous shining forth of some kind of star that led them. So the question is, why are magi coming from the east? How do they know about a Jewish messiah and what's going on with this odd star they're following? Well, given they're from the east, it's likely they know the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. You'll say, how do they know the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament if they're from Babylon? They're not Jews. How would they know it? Well, I do want to stop and consider for a moment. When the Jews were carried off into captivity, into exile, by Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, you guys remember that? When they're called off, what do we learn about four young men? One named Daniel, another Hananiah, another Mishael, and another Azariah. You hear them called by their pagan names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But what do we learn about Daniel and his three friends? Well, they're trained as magi in Babylon in the east. Daniel lives as a kind of head of the magi. Serving at the pleasure of the king, both under Babylon and Medo-Persia. And what gets established in Babylon, and scholars know this existed in the first century, is quite a large school in the study of the Old Testament scriptures that exists in the days of the birth of Christ. It seems that Daniel has passed down the Old Testament and his three friends, have passed down the Old Testament teachings about the Messiah, the prophecies of the coming Messiah, which you even have in the book of Daniel, and they established some kind of school there for the study of the Old Testament scriptures, and that's how these magi know about all of this. And so they're headed out. They're headed out, if you will. And they're going to see this one, this Messiah, a prophecy which they seem to know something about. Further, they saw a star rise and went to Jerusalem. And when they come to Jerusalem following that star, they expect the king of the Jews to be, be there, and they come to worship him, right? And Herod's like, well, he's not here. Where would he be born? You guys remember the story. I don't have to continue to read it there. But one of the questions we need to ask at that point is, why does the Lord use this kind of odd star that they're following? I mean, the Lord could have revealed that Christ had been born a number of ways, could he not? And he could have called these men a number of ways, so why this star? And how does that tie? This is the next question. I just want you to start to put a series of questions together in your mind. How does that star tie to Matthew 1, where we're told that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David? Well, to understand that, we need to understand the Old Testament promises of the coming messianic king who will be a blessing to the nation. So before we look at that, look at Matthew 2. Before I go right into those, answering those questions, look at Matthew 2, 3 through 8. We'll just kind of walk through this briefly, and then I'll begin to answer those questions. Look at what he says. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. You would be troubled if you were the king of the Jews and you were told there was one who was born the king of the Jews it's not your son so that troubles him and when Herod was troubled so would the people be he was brutal so if he was bothered you know it wasn't unusual if a king was troubled in some way in that day and age to go out and slaughter a bunch of people so they would be troubled with you so they're troubled with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people he inquired of them Bring him to me that I may come and worship him. Now, Herod is trying to seek out the time the star appeared because the star, we think, appears at the birth of Christ. And then they journey to see him. And Herod wants to know, in other words, since you saw the star marking his birth, how much time has elapsed so I know what age of boys to start killing? And he goes after those two years and younger. But what's this quote about? Matthew quotes from Micah regarding the birth of Jesus. And Russell walked through that quote a bit last night. But I really want to ask a question. What is this quote ultimately about and why the appeal there? Why the appeal there? In order to understand that, I'm going to have you look with me at Micah. So turn with me to the book of Micah. Keep your hand in Matthew 2 and turn with me to the book of Micah. I want to give you a bit of the setting of the book of Micah. So we'll look at chapter 1, and then we'll move to chapter 5, where this quote comes from. And you're getting here almost a kind of like short, deeper lesson. If you haven't been through our men's biblical theological study, if you were, you remember Micah potentially. If you sat through it and still don't remember, I'll jog your memory right now. Look at what it says. The word of the Lord that came to Micah, verse 1 of chapter 1, Moresheth, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. These are kings at the very end of the kingdom of Judah. They're right near the end. Which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria is the northern kingdom of Israel. They've already been carried off by the Assyrians because of their sin. And he sees a prophecy concerning Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel, who's already been carried off by Assyria, and Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, or Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, who's about to be carried off in exile under Nebuchadnezzar. They're almost there. Look what he says to them, verse 2. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God, be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. The Lord is going to be a witness against them, both the northern and southern kingdom of Israel, for their sin. Look at verse 5, just to pick up more context. All this, the reason God is coming against them in judgment, all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? They have wandered off into sin, both the north and the south, down to verse 7. What kind of sin? Verse 7. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. See, they have been caught up in idolatry as a people caught up in idolatry and God's judgments come against the northern kingdom of Israel and it's coming for the southern kingdom of Judah let's see a little bit more context look over at chapter 2 and verse 6 hear what's really being said by the people who are walking haughtily with a stick neck look what it says chapter 2 verse 6 do not preach thus they preach one should not preach of such things Disgrace will not overtake us. In other words, here's what they're saying. They're actually actively saying, the people are saying, do not preach about God's judgment. Don't preach about such things. We don't want to hear that. That is not pleasant, (laughs) right? Don't tell us about our sin and idolatry and God's judgment against us. Don't preach that. And so they're ceasing to preach it. Look at verse 10 of chapter two. Arise and go for this is no place to rest. Because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. You hear what kind of preacher they want? They want a preacher who lies to them. Tells them all is going to be well and prosperous. That's the sort of preacher this people want. They're just caught up in idolatry. They want preachers who tickle their ears, tell them what they want to hear. Go down to chapter 3 and verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. That's the kings. The kings. What's somebody going to say to the kings of Israel? Who detest justice. You have kings who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. Who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with Iniquity. So you hear the story of the kings. What are the kings like? They're wicked. Go on to verse 11. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Listen to its priests. Its priests teach for a price. Priests teach for a price. In other words, listen, we're not teaching because we're called by God to teach. We're teaching in exchange for money. That's the only reason we do it. You pay your pastors... But it's one thing for you to pay your pastors. It's another for them to say, we won't preach the gospel unless we're paid to do it. Unless we're paid to do it. This does happen in pastoral ministry. There are men. I have tried to schedule certain preachers who have told me things like, I can come if you pay me $5,000 per sermon. Right? That kind of thing. I was actually on the phone Talking to someone with regard to a very well known reform preacher and asking about him coming, and I'm on speakerphone. And the guy says, 5K per day, no less. And Teresa from the kitchen says, just hang up. (laughs) Right? And so we went on. But this is the kind of thing that actually happens. Let's read about the prophets, verse 11. So its kings are unjust. Its priests want cash. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. So the kings, the prophets, and the priests are all wicked. Wicked. Therefore, because of you, Zion, shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. In other words, you have so descended into wickedness and idolatry, you don't want preachers who tell you the truth. And guess what? You have plenty of kings, prophets, and priests who are more than happy to lie to you. And so I'm going to destroy you. This is the context. That people are utterly caught up in idolatry, they do not listen to the Lord. They love evil. Their prophets, priests, and kings are wicked. And God's justice is coming for them. That was not to be the state of things among God's people. We understand that? Rather, they were to trust in the Lord and obey his voice. He had promised them blessing upon blessing. According to Genesis twelve, fifteen, and 17, they were to receive a land in which they dwelt with God in peace. They were also to have a multiplying seed that grew into a blessed nation, a nation from which kings would come. And the king who came from them would possess the gate of his enemies and be a blessing to all nations. He would come from the tribe of Judah and to him would be the obedience of the peoples. He would be a godly and humble king. He would be a shepherd king who sat on David's throne forever. Here's a simple dilemma for Israel. What is to become of all the promises of land, of multiplying seed, and of blessing to all the nations? God promised all those things. The people are unfaithful. God's judgment's coming for them. What's to come of the promises? Well, the Lord is going to bring a new covenant king who will restore Israel and bring all these blessings to the nations. That's what's to become of them. The seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of the tribe of Judah, the Davidic king will come as a new covenant king and will restore Israel and deliver all the blessings. So look at Micah chapter 4. You're saying we're doing all this work to understand the Magi. Yes, we are. It shall come to pass in the latter days. You guys notice that language? That is eschatological language. That is language pointing you to the end of things. There are the former days, the days before Jesus, and there are the latter days, the days since Jesus. Those are the two major epochs, if you will, in the history of the church. The former days before Christ came, the latter days since he's come. It will come to pass in the latter days... Do you know the first reference to the latter days in the Bible? Genesis 49, one. What happens there? Jacob blesses his sons. And which son does he bless to be the king? Judah's line. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Right? To him will be the obedience of the peoples. We also see this language of the latter days in Isaiah 2. And in fact, Micah 4 is almost entirely mimicking Isaiah 2. Almost entirely. And that's not unimportant, and you'll see why. Because here's what I want you to catch, why it's not unimportant. When Micah 4 is mimicking Isaiah 2, and then Micah 5, 2 is being quoted in Matthew 2, you wonder, what's the connection with Isaiah? Well, just in Matthew 1, what book was quoted? Isaiah chapter 7. And so Matthew is tying Micah and Isaiah together. So I want you to pay attention to what he's doing. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the peoples, the nations, shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up. To the Mount of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. In other words, God's holy mountain is going to rise. His people are going to dwell there. And there will be peace among all the peoples. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. No more fear. All the fruit, if you will, from your vine that you want. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God Forever and ever in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted and the lame. I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. This, if you will, is the hope coming in the latter days. All will be set right. The lame will be healed. You guys remember Jesus doing that? The lame will be healed. All will be set right. All the nations will come to Zion and hear the word of the Lord. But from where will this king come that sets all this right in the latter days? From where will he come? He is the king of the latter days, promised in Genesis 49 of the tribe of Judah. The offspring of Abraham, to whom will be the obedience of the peoples. He is the king of the latter days, promised to David. Spoken about in Isaiah. Now here in Micah 4, from where will he come? Look at Micah 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. See, he's going to come from Bethlehem, where King David came from where king david came from now look at verse three because let's pick up the virgin birth i'm saying to you that micah and isaiah are being tied together by matthew so look at verse three of micah five right after we're told he's coming from bethlehem therefore he that's god shall give them that's the people up in other words he's going to turn them over to judgment Now, from the time of the Babylonian exile to the time of Christ, were the people still under the oppression of foreign nations? Yes. He's going to leave them under the oppression of foreign nations until, until what? Until the time, look at verse 3, when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. See, the Lord will give up Israel to her enemies until the time when she, who is in labor, has given birth. When this baby is born in Bethlehem, then the latter days have begun. The Messiah has come. Given all the parallels between Micah and Isaiah, this is likely Matthew, tying Isaiah 7.14, the virgin shall be with child, to Micah's language, They're going to be turned over until the child is born in Bethlehem. Now look at verses 4 and 5. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. He is the shepherd king who will stand in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and his people will dwell secure. He will be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Are you hearing this connection? What does all of that, though? Saying, Okay, that's great. Matthew is tying together Isaiah about the virgin being with child, the latter-day mountain of the Lord where all is made right, and you know, the swords are beaten into plowshares, he and Isaiah are together tying that to this son to be born in Bethlehem who will redeem Israel and restore all the promises. I see it. That's great. What does that have to do with the star? What does it have to do with the star? What do the latter-day coming of the Christ, the son of Abraham and son of David, have to do with the star? Look at Numbers chapter 24. And what's interesting is, we're going to look at a passage in Numbers 24, a prophecy told by another pagan magician named Balaam. You guys remember Balaam? And let's listen to what Balaam has to say. Numbers 24, and I want to ground you in the time period that Balaam is talking about. Look at verse 14. And now behold, I am going to my people. Come. Come. I will let you know what this people will do to your people, your people being the Jews, in the what? In the latter days. Okay, see that phrase again? It's a very specific phrase. And he took up his discourse and he said, listen, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. Now look what he sees. I see him. Him. If you look up, it's the one who crouches like a lion. Genesis 49. You see that in Numbers 24, 9. Right? I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Why? Why? He's not near. He's a thousand plus years off. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And what shall it do? Crush the forehead of Moab, the enemies of God, the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman is coming. He's coming as a star. He's coming as a king. He's coming as a skull crusher in the latter days. I hope you're starting to hear all this. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, the latter days shepherd king from David's house. He is the king who was promised to come from Abraham and David. He is the one who comes with the star. And why does he come? To save his people. To bring to bear all the promises God has made. Listen, when the people are in exile and they have violated the covenant God made with Moses, you understand that the Mosaic covenant is still in effect. God hasn't broken the covenant. They have. In fact, you know the covenant's in effect because they are getting the what? The covenant curses for their covenant violation. They never loved the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. They never could. So they needed one who did. One who could. They needed one who could restore them and save them. But please don't miss this. His people whom he's come to save are from all the nations. You see that in every one of these passages. He's not merely coming to save the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. He's coming to save all the peoples of the earth. And he himself is their peace. And so now in this scene, what Matthew understanding all of this says is in this scene, you now have these foreign magi coming by way of a star that's appeared at the birth of Christ to worship Jesus, the King of the Jews. And Matthew sees all of these things in the Old Testament coming to fruition. God is graciously calling these pagan men by a means he promised. Also a means that they would understand, isn't it? As those who gazed at the stars. So that he might save them in Christ. He's keeping his promise that the son of Abraham and the son of David would bless all the nations. So the Magi are called by God to come to Jesus. God has revealed to them who this baby is. He is the king of the Jews. He is the blessing to all nations. He is the God, man, the savior, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The latter days have arrived with the birth of Jesus. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of woman and the magi have come to worship him. And that leads to our second point, which will come fairly quickly. The magi worship the newborn king. Look at verses nine through 12. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, as mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Here's a couple questions I want to ask briefly. Why these particular gifts? So they arrive at the house, they follow the start of the house, they arrive at the house. When they're there, they're, ex- they're exceedingly joyful. They come in to worship him, and as they do, they offer him gifts. You know, that's typical in worship. You worship, you offer gifts, right? So they come in and they worship, offer Why these particular gifts? Remember I said in the hymn, We Three Kings of Orient Are, they offer these gifts. And they say they're offering gold to honor him as a king, frankincense to worship him as God, and myrrh to prepare for his coming death on the cross. Now, there may be some truth to that. However, I want to pick up the fact that the gold and frankincense and myrrh were gifts brought to King David and King Solomon. While myrrh was used in burial, that's true, in the Psalms, myrrh is mentioned together with a joyful occasion. We actually see in 1 Kings 10, the queen of Sheba coming to Solomon and bringing him gold and frankincense. And then the other foreign kings coming in and bringing gold and spices and myrrh. And they're coming before Solomon to bring these gifts. And what is happening here is that David and Solomon, as types of the Christ, are now being fulfilled in the antitype, the one to whom they pointed. He is the Christ. Second, why are these magi overcome with joy when they see the star resting over his house? When they go into the house to worship this infant, this toddler, potentially, why are they presenting these gifts, worshiping and rejoicing? You know that's not typical, right? You don't typically go into a house, see a one-year-old and fall down and worship and offer him gifts. You guys understand that? That may be typical behavior if that one-year-old is the king though. They know he's the messianic king. And they worship him. They trust in him. What I'm suggesting about the Magi is not that they're just pagans paying honor or tribute to some foreign king. But that they were pagans to whom the Lord revealed the truth about the Messiah, to whom the Lord gave the grace of faith, and so they come and worship him as the Messianic King. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples, the kings shall bring tribute to him. Friends, it's not just that these Magi saw a star that led them to the King of the Jews. Rather, they received a revelation from the Lord that led them to the Savior of the world. They found the one who will save them from their sins. They found the one who is Emmanuel, God with us. They see him who is their peace with God. They see the seed of the woman who will crush the head of Satan, and they worship him. Listen to this. I want to pick this language up again with Sheba, the Queen of Sheba. May desert tribes, Psalm 72, Listen. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Genesis 3.14. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. That's what you see happening here. The star that is shown is revealed to them in even greater light and even greater light. And that language of that light that Emmanuel brings goes through Isaiah 7, Isaiah 8, and Isaiah 9. And I want you to hear what's said in Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Why? Why are they rejoicing when they see this great light, this star of Jacob that's arisen, that's brought them to the Messianic King? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government is, By God's grace, they were drawn to the Lord Jesus and they were given the grace of faith in him. The Father beckoned them and they came and they rejoiced in him. He's the one who saves them from their sins. He's the shepherd of the flock among the nations. He is their peace with God. He has brought the light of revelation into their darkened worlds, their darkened hearts, their darkened minds, and they finally see the Lord of glory who fills their hearts With rest and peace and joy. He quells their guilt and fear and shame. He is, if you will, bless them with the gladness or the joy of his presence. He crushes our enemies of Satan and sin and death. And they're filled with joy in him. And they praise him. In sovereign grace, you understand what this is like. We praise what we enjoy we take joy in something we praise it think of how we cannot but help share something that gives us great joy we want to tell people about it simple mundane things when we find joy in that we open our mouths and speak about it praise if you will sort of completes the enjoyment in some way i'm enjoying this and now i've got to praise this to you so that you enjoy it and now in praising it to you it's made my joy complete actually first john picks up on that doesn't he doesn't it do we find joy in being saved by jesus and do we find the completion of that joy in praising him singing him to him praying to him telling others about him that's what we see with the magi it seems if you will the magi understood that the chief end of man is to glorify god and enjoy him forever and they found that in the grace of faith in christ and i hope that as we see them doing that the lord will cause us to join them in that that we will find joy in him as well let me pray father we Pray that we will find great joy in Jesus, our King, our Savior, our Lord, and we will praise his name in song, in prayer, in offering, and Father, in opening our mouths and speaking about him. We pray that you would do this work in us, that we would be thankful for him in Jesus' name. Amen.